Hey, everybody. It's Michelle, and I am completely cup runneth over with joy because today I get to announce that Chasing the Swallow, Truth, Science, and Hope for Pediatric Feeding and Swallowing Disorders is 100% done and in publication, and you can check out your copy on Amazon. And the best part, if that book moves you, if it grows your evidence-based triangle to to engage in interprofessional practice, to do the root cause analysis to why the child is presenting with the PFD, to then engage with the team to get that child to a point of healing so that the real growth can begin, then y'all check out speechtherapypd.com because they are gracious enough to entertain all of these amazing, joyful ideas. And they're currently carrying the book for 13.5 ASHA CEUs. So (sighs) thank you for being a part of the first bite journey that led to chasing the swallow. And be sure to check out speechtherapypd.com for the 13.5 ASHA CEUs that accompany it. Happy learning. Hi, folks, and welcome to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional, a speech therapy podcast sponsored by SpeechTherapyPD.com. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MS, CCC, SLP, CLC, the all things PEDS SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, here in Town, South Carolina, and a guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically complex and fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light, hope, knowledge, and joy to the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate by way of a nerdy conversation, so there's plenty of laughter too. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, ethics on how to run a private practice, pediatric dysphagia to clinical supervision, and all other topics in the world of pediatric speech pathology. Our goal is to bring evidence-based practice straight to you by interviewing subject matter experts to break down the communication barriers so that we can access the knowledge of their fields. Or, as a close friend says, to build the bridge. By bringing other professionals and experts in our field together, we hope to spark advocacy joy and passion for continuing to grow and advance care for our little ones. Every fourth episode, I join in. I'm Erin Forward, MSP, CCC, SLP, the Yankee by way of Rochester, New York transplant who actually inspired this journey. I bring a different perspective, that of a newish clinician with experience in early intervention, pediatric acute care, and nonprofit pediatric outpatient settings. So sit back, relax, and watch out for all our squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. All right, folks, today we have a very special treat to close out Dysphagia Awareness Month. 
we have the one and only Dr. Raquel Garcia, my very sweet friend. And I'm going to admit, Raquel, I view you as a mentor as well. Oh, gosh. (laughs) (laughs) She has agreed to come on the podcast. And we had to reschedule this like umpteen times. A gajillion times. (laughs) Yes. I mean, one kid got sick, then the other kid got sick. And, and I got sick. <laughs> she got sick. And then Chewy, bless his heart, had to have eight, nine teeth out and three tumors. He had a base of tongue, surface of the tongue tumor. And I was like, of course, the speech language pathologist, they're benign. But like, of course, my dog has a base of tongue tumor. Like, obviously. Oh, <laughs> like, my gosh. Of course, <laughs> the speech pathologist has a dog that has tongue cancer. That is crazy. <laughs> Oh my God, what the heck? Oh my God. But like, everybody's better. We survived the craziness and joy that is May for Pediatric Feeding Disorder Awareness Month and June for Dysphagia Awareness Month. Yes. And we're here. Yes. And I'm so honored to be here and to finally be able to, to talk with you and talk with your entire community about areas that I'm so passionate about. Cause I'll be honest to Michelle, I could talk to you forever. I think we can just gab and find <laughs> things to talk about. And I think that listening to you and your podcast make me a better therapist. I want to thank you for really supporting our profession so much. Absolutely. This has been uh Gotta love her, Erin. This was all her idea a lifetime ago when she was a student. And this passion project has been so blessed. So thank you. Okay. Before I get all in my feels, because we don't need my Irish eyes leaking at the start of a podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It wouldn't be the first, not going to be the last. So today we thought we'd kind of throw everybody a curveball. A lot of people are aware of the powerful presence that you have in the pediatric feeding and swallowing community for your passion projects of congenital heart defects and and the NICU and how that impacts and results in pediatric dysphagia and pediatric feeding disorders. But we're going to curveball it and talk about hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. Yeah. I think yep. you got I, it. HIE, there's something <laughs> I teach people to follow and not talk. <laughs> like, oh my God. But can you, for those of the listeners that haven't heard your walk before, can you talk to us about? What made you want to be a speech pathologist and then how you got into working with patients with HIE? Of course. You know, I think one thing that I learned many years ago before I got into this profession is that everybody has a story. I originally, you know, was somebody that was very driven for money. I'm going to be very honest. And I'm the first in my family to graduate from high school and, you know, first my family to really do anything with my life. So I thought I had to have a profession that was money generated. So my whole undergrad was focused on, I wanted to be a lawyer. I wanted to make money. And I was even very methodical in like landing a paralegal job during that time and trying to find outlets to help me pay for law school. And then, you know, well, as I had no idea you wanted to go to law school. First. Really? Oh, I thought you knew that. Yeah. See, I, <laughs> I had a pack my senior year, like my last semester, because I wanted to go to law school. So like, and my dad was like, you're not going to be a lawyer. You're not cut for it. You need to be a speech pathologist. And I don't See? really know what they do. I'm like, I get that. Yes. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like, you know, I think coming from a, a background where, you know, we had a lot of food inequities, we had a lot of health inequities. Like, you know, my mom was a single mom working a very menial job that I thought my entire life, I don't want to be poor, even though we were poor. And all I could think about was I knew education was my route to get me out of poverty. And my 
goal as thinking about becoming a lawyer was that I could, you know, I watched Law and Order and I watched all these TV shows. I was like, I can make money and I could be very wealthy. And, you know, having goals related to finances are not a bad thing. But I think mm-hmm. when you're planning your life as a young adult, it doesn't always help you shape your, you know, your focus really well. And I learned that the hard way when I realized after I graduated and I was working in a law firm for quite some time, that that just wasn't, it didn't sit well with me. It wasn't who I was because I just was somebody that really wanted to help others. And I thought that I could utilize my passion for finances and being wealthy to use that as a lawyer and help others, but it just was not aligning with what I thought I could do. So I ended up looking at just professions that I could go back to get my master's in without having to redo my bachelor's essentially. And I started finding an interest in working with children with autism. So I was like, oh, I can work with children with autism. I think that'd be something I'm really interested in. So in my late 20s, I started taking prereqs for speech with the focus of only working with children with autism. Again, I'm a very hyper-focused person. So I even, when I joined my graduate program, I even made sure I got a graduate assistantship working in the augmentative communication lab so that way I could work exclusively with children with autism. Like that was what I wanted to do. That was my path. And then let's see, I took adult dysphagia and I hated it. And I was like, I'm never doing this ever. (laughs) But you know what? I love my dysphagia teacher. He was passionate and he was engaging and he was so like made you want to love swallowing. But I left that class and I was like, I'm never doing this ever because I hate, I was like, this is terrible. Like who would want to do this? And then I started my rotations as a, you know, finishing up my graduate work. And I'm already in my 30s at this point. And I remember I walked into someone's room and they were having, you know, I didn't have the most support in some of my externships, transparency. And I remember I walked into somebody's room. They couldn't swallow. They were having a lot of trouble. And when I asked people around me for help, like, why is this happening? Or what should we do? The answer was like, well, he needs a feeding tube. He needs to go home. And I was like, oh my gosh, if that was my mom or my husband, because I was married, I said that that would not be okay. And this person did not have anybody around, right? So I remember I sat to myself and I said, give yourself a year of just learning about swallowing, even though you hate it. Like you need to figure this out in the meantime and figure out why this happens because it's not okay to take away food from somebody. And we know food is so meaningful, quality of life and happiness. And listen, I'm talking to you while drinking my coffee, eating an ice pop like that, you know, that brings you happiness, right? <laughs> Literally coffee and an ice pop. It's delicious. But, you know, I, I, so I promised myself that day, I was like, all right, you're going to be an autism specialist, but for your clinical fellowship, you need to really focus on figuring out feeding and swallowing. So this never happens to another patient. Right. Because again, I just want to help others. Like, that's my goal. And then I fell into working with medically complex adults, medically complex babies and children. And then from there, I just fell in love with feeding and swallowing. And I don't think I'll ever get divorced from it. I think it's a marriage made in heaven because it really ties in my passion to help others and my drive to really just make sure that we're all doing our best in the field to maximize quality of life, decrease caregiver burden, and really promote parent confidence and parent competence. Because I think that is something I never really understood when I was going through graduate school, 
And I think that's why there was a gap when I met that nice elderly man in the hospital during my rotation who they were going to give a feeding tube. Like there was nobody there to say like, let's help him improve his quality of life. Let's see if we could, you know, find a way to navigate his health literacy to improve his ability to get treatment when he leaves here. Like, let's not just say he's a lost cause because of X, Y, and Z. So that's my story. I'm sticking to it. But what I will tell you (laughs) is that one thing I always remind myself in the hardest of days and the hardest of times, like this past year, I would say the past two years have been very hard for me just because I made a lot of transitions in my personal and professional life. But what I always remind myself is that everyone has a story. So we want to be inspired But don't forget that they have a story. So when we're working with them, we have to be inspired and give inspired care because that story doesn't end when they leave our room and it doesn't end when, you know, we think that we've quote unquote, you know, fixed them. It never ends. It continually needs to evolve. So I'm honored to be part of your story, Michelle, and to be part of Aaron's story and our colleague Kristen West's story, but also every family that we touch. Like it's just, it's an amazing, the reach that we have. I can talk all day. There's a problem here. Yes. It's, it's the tapestry. Like when I sit back and I look at how our lives have intersected and like personally, y'all, I, I love these women and it's so cool to me because, you know, I'm quick to give a sappy intro about how we met, but you came into our lives and it feels like you've just always been there. Oh, you're so kind. Yes. But it's just, it's just wonderful. And for this, I am incredibly grateful. Oh, same here. Same here. And, you know, I I love that we were able to collaborate with Feeding Matters this year. And hopefully we can continue to collaborate with other great organizations like Dysphagia Research Society and the National Association for Neonatal Therapists as well. Yes. Folks, we're going to put in a shameless plug right here, right now. Every so often I pop on the world of the internet and I hear people complain, what is Asha doing for me? What is this organization doing for me? You are these organizations. So let's all get really collectively uncomfortable before we get comfortable. And I can't tell you how many volunteer activities that we're all a part of and how we overlap between the PFD planning committee. So let's go ahead and just shout out for that. Yes, definitely. are coming to ASHA this year in New Orleans for November. Dr. Memory Goza has outdone herself and created a phenomenal PFD track filled with volunteers that reviewed call for papers that are some of the greatest research oh, yes. minds, actual clinical researchers, actual clinicians, mm-hmm. and myself, Rocky, and our sweet friend, Kristen, all volunteered to be part of that track. And we're here today to give you one snapshot on one type of potential etiology, but that's just it. It's a snapshot. And when you actually dig deep into Pete's dysphagia and into pediatric disorders, there is so much variety there. So volunteer, come and join and please tell Dr. Goza thank you for a job well done because good Lord. She does so much. She's just, I mean, Dr. Goza has really done so much for the field of PFD, but also for 
really being able to deliver information that is complicated and complex and really nice digestible bites. So if you're not aware of Memory Gosa or if you haven't read her work or Dr. Doldrill's work, who they often pair together, they have really great articles. Some are open access, some are not, but they're really great articles that really support foundational knowledge for PFD. And yes. I can't say it enough that we have to look at our clinical science and our and how we can take that clinical science and apply it the next day. And one of the reasons that I'm so passionate about looking at the research and looking at clinical science is because even if it's something that you're like, oh my gosh, I can never do this. This was done in a lab. This doesn't really fit my programming or my setting. There might be some information in there that's going to take you to another type of article or to another type of publication that can help you understand how to help your patient the next time you see them. So something I always tell myself or my students or new clinicians that I'm working with is like, you need to ask yourself, can you use this on a Monday? Right? Like, yes. Can you use this yes. on a Monday? And if it's something that you feel like you can, then this is going to help you increase your skills as a clinical scientist because we're speech pathologists. Science is in our name. So we have yes. to remember that at the end of the day, we're scientists trying to come up with a hypothesis to help our clients do better, develop, and maximize their life to be as happy and healthy. And I hate saying normal because we're all normal, but to be as normal for them as possible. So that way that, you know, differences are appreciated and not looked down upon. So, yeah. Yeah. Again, for the people in the back. Yes. <laughs> so even though we're going to be talking about a specific etiology today, I want us to really remember is that we cannot treat a diagnosis, right? We can't say, well, they have this diagnosis, so this is how I'm going to approach it. We have to look at the, the child because they're somebody's baby, right? Their child from head to toe and think about who are they from, you know, hair to toes? Like, how are they interacting? What is their gross motor? What is their fine motor? How is their sensory processing? How's just their their ability to be engaged with an environment that is not their, you know, that, that is different than their typical environment? I mean, we have to remember that that's what we're really looking at and not a diagnosis, But I do want to talk about this diagnosis today so we can just really understand that some of our clients have injuries that we can support them through their trajectory of life and support them through development. So, yes. Okay. So here's the deal. Once upon a time, I worked under the misguided information that infants and toddlers that spent time in the NICU were discharged with all potential known etiologies already diagnosed. And my job was just to come in as the silo clinician, treat the swallowing and roll with. Oh, how wrong I was. And then I realized after collaborating with my NICU counterparts, how very tied their hands are when working in the NICU. And that's not something that's really talked about because if we go back to Ed was back on the beginning of May, y'all, mm-hmm. so please go back and check out Ed Bice's episode. But he talks about how there's strategic deficits within the world of teaching swallowing. Oh, yes. And one of them comes down to limited options in textbooks and resources, as well as limited pediatric dysphagia courses and practicum sites. 
So if you are listening and you have a child on your caseload and something is off, something is different, and they haven't started on this journey, Mm -hmm. listen wholeheartedly. Yes. Because probably don't have all the medical records. There's probably a breakdown in communication. This is common, unfortunately, in our state of early intervention meets allied health meets medical community. But take it away. Talk to us about what is HIE. I'm not going to attempt to say the E again. I did it the one time. (laughs) So I will say it for you. Don't worry. Hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. And before I get started on this topic, I do have to give a really good shout out to my dear colleague. Her name is Courtney Lichtenstein. Lichtenstein, I always say it wrong. We're very good friends. And I still say her name wrong. So there you go. But, you know, she's a, she was for a very long time a good mentor for me in the neonatal intensive care unit. And she really had passion projects about HIE and helped me really understand how to serve this population better. So I just really want to give her that recognition because, again, oftentimes we look at certain diagnoses and we just say, well, okay, well, that that's a sad case. That's what's going to happen. And she helped me learn not to do that. So hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. So we know that feeding and swallowing is a cortical act, right? And we know that there can be different types of medical comorbidities that impact a child's ability to develop feeding skills and and safety and swallowing in a good trajectory. Hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy is essentially brain damage. So if we break down the word, hypoxic means shortage of oxygen, ischemic means shortage of blood, and then encephalopathy is the result of a brain damage. The diagnosis of ischemic encephalopathy can occur, you know, it can be something that occurred during the birthing process, shortly after the birthing process, or perhaps something that occurred in utero that they were not sure of. And typically, if you're diagnosed with hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, we're under the assumption that you're diagnosed at birth. But that's not always the case, believe it or not. I don't know the percentages. I am a a true clinician at heart, so I'm not um, 100% full on the numbers and the percentages. But I know there is a small population that is diagnosed after the fact. So it could even be within, you know, after the first year of life that they had a hypoxic event during either in utero or after the birthing process that caused this to occur. So the hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, when it's not diagnosed at birth, we know that this can be something that an early intervention provider, PTOT, speech pathologist, has identified motoric, fine motor, or gross motor deficits that they're concerned about and have referred to the appropriate parties. So this is why, even though we're talking about something that may be very NICU-focused, that's where we diagnose it typically, I want you to remember as an early intervention provider, you still drive that bus to say, well, this child doesn't have any primary diagnoses, but they're presenting with gross motor, fine motor, feeding, swallowing delays, perhaps we need to drive that bus to neurology and find out if they've had imaging on the brain or drive that bus to genetics or drive that bus to um, a peer-to-peer parent advocate to help the parent have increased health literacy. There's a a lovely little research article Mm -hmm. called Hypoxic Ischemic Encephalopathy, Pathophysiology and Experimental Treatments. It comes to us from our nursing journal, Mm -hmm. Newborn and Infant Nursing Reviews, NAINR, and what I like about here is these kids are going to show up on your radar because as they quote, by the age of two years, up to 60% of infants with HIE will die 
or have severe disabilities, including intellectual Mm -hmm. delays, epilepsy, and or CP. Mm -hmm. So we're looking at your patients and they're raising red flags for CP, but we don't know the why. Exactly. Yep. This is the time that we need to send them to a team or to a neurologist that can really identify like what is going on and why do we think that they're presenting with these features. So yes. great point. Yes. Thank you. And I'm going to reference some articles today too, so that way we can kind of tie it in to understanding this population a little bit better. I might talk about like gross motor, fine motor at times. And that's, again, I'm not a PT or an OT. I don't pretend to be, but I know that I've worked with some amazing PTs and OTs that have taught me how to be a better clinician that can look at a child from head to toe or an adult and determine what else can we do for them? Because it's not just me looking at feeding and swallowing because there must, there could be something more to that story that we need to unravel. So if hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy is something that the delivery team identifies quickly and determines that this is something that is occurring, an option, a medical treatment is something called therapeutic hypothermia. And this can be done, it's not done in every NICU. It's typically done in a level three or a level four NICU because it's very, the child is going to be put into a medical procedure that is essentially going to cool their body at their core temperature to be about 33 degrees Celsius. So you can have whole body cooling, which is like a blanket that is going to help with that core of their body getting very cold, or they can have just the cap on their head. It's called cool cap, and it's going to do the same thing where it's going to help cool the body. The goal behind therapeutic hypothermia is to reduce acute brain injury, slow the spread of any type of neuronal cell damage, because we know time is brain, right? The time of a brain damage, we need to address it as soon as possible. And the goal is really to prevent brain death and minimize any permanent damage. You're typically with therapeutic hypothermia, you're typically a one-to-one assignment for the nurses. You may even be intubated, which is a breathing tube in the throat. And what they really want to do is for the next 72 hours is just cool your body and stop any brain death as, as much as possible. This is a very similar medical treatment that is also done with new spinal cord injuries. So if it's a new spinal cord injury that just happened and they can take you to a trauma center, they have something called therapeutic hypothermia specifically for spinal cord injury, where they try to, they cool your body to try to stop any uh, neuronal death in the spine as well. So this is something that is cross-used, not just with the hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy population. As they decrease the body's temperature, that's also going to slow the baby's metabolic rate, which is also going to help for cell recovery and try to prevent any of that permanent brain damage essentially. And then after that 72-hour period, this is the time when they start to rewarm the infant. And that typically is about a one to two day process. So I want to pause there for a minute and just think about this mom and this father or these caregivers just had a baby. They're telling the parents, your baby's had a brain injury. We have to cool their body, right? Sometimes they even have to take them all the way to another hospital two to three hours away. So when that is occurring, think about just that trauma that that parent is going through in that moment of time. And then take into account that 
now their child is going to be in a, in a medical intervention essentially for th- 72 hours. So I believe that's what, like three days, maybe four days. I can't do math. I'm a speech pathologist, right? But think about their, in most cases, that means they're not holding their baby. They're not doing skin to skin. They're not bonding with their baby. And sometimes in some institutions, they're not even touching their baby. Thankfully, the research is changing where now we're saying, well, why can't we hold our babies? Why can't we hold them? You know, why can't the parent be more, have more time with their baby skin to skin? But that's very, very new research. And most institutions are not still doing that. So go back to that parent who is now just gave birth in a new hospital, likely not the one they gave birth in. And now they can't even hold their baby and they can't even feed their baby because typically If you're a baby on therapeutic hypothermia, typically you're not being fed. Again, there's new research coming out. Literally, I have an article here from 2022 that is looking at, is it safe to give a baby therapeutic oral trials during therapeutic hypothermia, right? So it's looking at a cohort study to determine if that's even possible. So we have a long way to go with this population in the first three days of life, because we know that's the time where parents need to be with their babies, right? Like if you're a parent and they tell you you can't hold your baby, you can't feed your baby, you can't do skin to skin. Think about just that trauma. I did it for 12 hours with Bear. Yeah. And it was horrible. 12 hours. Think of that. Yeah. 12 hours. And it was the longest 12 hours of my life because he was a 35 weeker, but six twelve, he was a beast, dude. Oh, he was big. Yeah, but still. Yeah. And then the parents that want to breastfeed, mm-hmm. I'm just imagining all of the grief that they're going through there and starting that process of like hand expressing when you start right. and it not being with your baby and the trauma that that folks, this is a hard question. When was the last time that you sat down with the caregiver and asked them? How is your postpartum exactly for both caregivers, mm-hmm. not just the mother, but also the father figure or the mm-hmm. partner? Exactly. Yes. Sorry. No, but I think that's an important part, Michelle, because I think, you know, and I'm a neonatal therapist, like I'm a true diehard, like I am currently working in the academic setting, but I miss clinical care. Like I just want to be in the trenches. Like that's my, I love that part of it. And the core of that is working with the parents and speaking with them. But often I think stepping away from the NICU has made me realize is that As most clinicians that are passionate about neonatal care, we forget that the parent is who the child goes home with. So their goals and their values and their vision is equally as important as what we think that their child needs to do and what their child needs to use and how their child needs to feed. So we have to unpack a lot when we walk into that caregiver's room or to that pod, because we have to remember that they have a story that we don't know. Even if we were in the room when their child was admitted, we don't know how they feel. We don't know the trauma they've gone through. And we don't know the stress, the grief, the anger that they're feeling. So yes. I, I think we have to remember that. And that's something you'll never learn in graduate school. But that's part of being a neonatal therapist. And that's part of being a feeding therapist. Yep, it is. Not all about NSOMES, folks. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we have to, you know, remember that parents look to us for support and guidance and we're the medical providers, but we also want them to know that their story is just as meaningful as their child's presentation. 
right? So it, I don't always just look at what the child's doing. I look at what the parent is telling me as well, even if it's their nonverbal communication. So, you know, we just talked about therapeutic cooling and we talked about it in a very broad stroke way, but I want us to also know that not every baby with HIE will qualify for therapeutic cooling. I've had babies that I ask myself as a speech pathologist, I say, wow, why wasn't this baby cooled? And oftentimes the doctors will tell me, well, they didn't meet the scoring criteria. And because of that, they might have missed that window to get cooled. Doesn't mean it's right or wrong, but they use a standardized measure to determine if the child meets criteria to get cooled, essentially. Because cooling can also have negative effects if you're not meeting the criteria. So, you know, cooling, you, it's a very minimal effect, but you, you know, you can have a chance of having a stroke or having a brain bleed or having increased seizures just from the cooling effect. So there's something called the Sarnet scoring. Have you ever heard of that, Michelle? No. So this is something that the doctors use. We don't do this, obviously. But the Sarnet scoring tool is a way for them to determine, is this child in the normal to mild HIE range? Are they in the moderate HIE range? Or are they in the severe HIE range? And it's looking at the child under six different categories. So it's looking at like their level of consciousness, and that would include like, are they wakeful? Are they alert? Are they crying? Are they very lethargic? Or are they non-responsive to any type of stimuli? Is this used like acute, like as soon as the cooling process is off, or is this used after, like a couple months after the incident? This is a great question. This is used to determine if the child qualifies for cooling. So this is literally used in the delivery room as they're trying to resuscitate the child because they're having this hypoxic event. So this is something that the physicians, the neonatal nurse practitioners, the neonatologists, they use this in real time as they're trying to resuscitate the child to determine if they qualify for cooling or not. So this is something that is often done. So we look at level of consciousness, then we look at spontaneous activity. So is the infant active? Does the infant have decreased activity or do they have no activity? And we know when a baby is born, they should be like going crazy, right? Crying, screaming, arms flailing because they've just been through a very traumatic event. Then they look at their posture. So again, this goes back to does the baby have flexion? Does this baby have like a distal flexion or hyperextension? Do they look frog-legged? Or is this a baby that doesn't really have any type of posture, like is having some posturing without any stimulation? So having posturing at baseline, which we know is not good. Then they look at their tone. So this is where, you know, when I preach to my students and to my clinicians, we need to understand what tone is. It's not just a PT or an OT scope. It's really an R scope as well. So we need, you know, the doctors look at this. Is this a child with hypotonia? So hypo to little tonia, hypertonia, too much tone, or is this a child that has a mixed tone that they can't really determine? And that includes looking at like spasticity, which we know could be like a stiffness or flaccidity, which they would classify under the Sarnot tool as a ragdoll type presentation. And then they look at reflexes. So just as a speech pathologist, we look at reflexes, the doctors do as well. So they're looking at like the suck and the moreau. 
And then they look at their like autonomic stability. We know that comes from the brain and the central nervous system. So really knowing, you know, their heart rate, their respiration and their pupils, what is going on with that. If they get a score that is um, a certain score, they determine if they have a severe HIE, a moderate HIE, or a mild HIE. Typically, if you're in the normal to mild range, you're not eligible for cooling. Moderate and severe, they'll typically be ineligible for cooling depending on the physician team. And a very old model, like a very, very old model that is still being followed, but research is trying to change that. And I think that's so wonderful is that as soon as they're giving that supportive care with the therapeutic hypothermia, they make the baby NPO. So think about that again, the baby's going to be NPO for probably three to five days. So that baby who typically is going to be a a full-term baby is going to miss a window of five days of not learning and experiencing food. Yeah. So think about that for a minute. We're expecting Newborn babies to crawl on their mama as soon as they're born, do that baby crawl and look for the breast. This is a baby that is likely not going to be able to put anything in their mouth, explore, learn how things taste, learn how things smell, use their sensory system for about five days because of this medical intervention. So hey, hold that thought. The first time I heard of a baby crawling as a newborn, it like rocked my world. Isn't it crazy? It's magical. Yes. It's the coolest thing you'll ever see. Rocky and I both have our CLC. Mm-hmm. If you want to work on little itty bitties, go get your speaking of, got to renew it. But <laughs> the CLC course, they actually show videos. They will deliver the baby, place the baby on, excuse me, the mom's abdomen, clean the baby up, and the baby will actually pull itself up. Yep. And there's so many initial reflexes that they're learning integrate. And this is why we have to have the OTs as our counterparts in the NICU in feeding, because this is, it's beautiful to collaborate with them on this. So make a pitch. If you want to work with the itty bitties, please, please, please go pursue your CLC. Okay. Sorry. Pursue your CLC, but also reach out to OTs, your OT counterparts and learn about what they do in the NICU. One thing that always like I don't know, it gets me, but maybe it's just me. I know that, you know, people in our field are very motivated to work with neonatal, the neonatal population. And I often hear, well, OT is infringing on my caseload or OT is doing this. Well, I think we need to realize that all of us have a seat at the table because the goal is not for me to be the super speech pathologist, right? The goal is to send this baby home and have the best experiences with feeding as possible. So if we can get a double whammy and have OT and speech work with the baby, and we can learn a little bit from OT, they can learn a little bit from us, even if it's not directly designed that way, it makes you a better clinician. And I can't tell you how many great OTs and PTs I've worked with that I was like, huh, I didn't know that. Or I'm like, oh, that makes sense because we don't really learn it in our graduate coursework because we do soups to nuts in speech pathology, right? We do so much. So it's oftentimes learning about- Did you say soup to nuts? Soup to nuts. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that, I've isn't never, that a phrase? I've never heard soup to nuts before. Or maybe but- it's a Rocky <laughs> phrase. I don't even know, but I, I say that a lot. Like we do soups to nuts. Like we do everything, right? Oh my God, like if you go to the supermarket- and look at down every aisle. That's what speech pathology does. I mean, we work from 
babies to geriatrics. We work from fluency to cough function. I mean, we do everything you can think about in this world to help people feed, swallow, and communicate the best they can. So why not partner with the specialists in mobility and the specialists in activities of daily living? And an occupational therapist in the NICU is teaching the baby and the parent how to have that baby do the occupation of being a baby. Like how do they handle... You know, that's the babies. We can't automatically think a baby's going to know how to be a baby, especially when they've had a very traumatic introduction to the world. So oftentimes we have to support them on that. And I think looking to many people in our units, even music therapists or art therapists or anyone, child life specialists, like they're going to teach us small nuggets that are going to make us better professionals. So Yes, this is why we engage in interprofessional practice. And that starts with interprofessional education, what she just described. Yes, definitely, yes. definitely, yeah, definitely, definitely. So, you know, I, I'm really passionate about talking about this area because I attended a talk at NAMP this year, the National Association for Neonatal Therapy, and we had a neurologist speak at the conference about HIE. And the neurologist, her name's Dr. Arroyo, she partnered with Hope for HIE, which is a parent-run organization that supports children and families that have the diagnosis of HIE. And they basically talked about the first few months of life and what the HIE story looks like from both perspectives, the medical and the parent's perspective. And the neurologist, Dr. Royal, came up to me afterward and we were talking and she said, you know, it's really amazing, this organization. Everyone just really wants to help their clients and their families. But I'm getting so much feedback that they're not involved on these cases. They're not consulted. It's too soon. You know, the baby's too sick to work with therapy. The parents are too, you know, stressed out and emotional to work with therapy. But that's not always the case. Like, have we asked the parents, right? Have we asked them, do they want to know a little bit more about their baby's feeding and swallowing, even though they're not feeding and swallowing yet? Or do they want to learn more about how to support their pumping journey and preserving their milk while they're on this recovery? Or do we, did we ask them, like, do you want to learn about how to help soothe your baby because they may have some state dysregulation? So I think we often make assumptions in the medical community that we can't be consulted yet, or we can't work with this family yet because the baby's so critically sick or critically ill, but why not? Maybe we can, you know, and I'm, I'm that person that often like makes waves and I don't know if that's a good or a bad thing, but you know, <laughs> I mean, why not work with patients as early as possible? Because at the end of the day, we're not just treating the baby, we're treating the parents too. You know, we're really helping. We want to make sure that their journey for recovery doesn't end when they leave the NICU, right? Yeah. They leave the NICU when they're medically stable, not when they're developmentally appropriate or not when they've reached all their milestones, right? Like if that was the case, they'd be in the NICU for 15 years probably. But, you know, we need to make sure that the parents are set up for success when they enter the community. So let me put the onus on the community-based therapist really quick. And that's the walk that I walk, right? Right, of course. The NICU therapist do not get the luxury of knowing where these patients get discharged to. Of course. Like I first started this, I would get so frustrated. Well, how come the NICU therapist didn't call me? 
and like, tell me anything about this kid because I came from a hospital where we would just call, but it was comparing a potato to a zebra. Exactly. It was a small community-based hospital where there was one adult home health therapist I would call when, because I was treating adults back in Virginia and like, ta-da, easy continuity of care, right? Right. But when you leave that insulated rare jewel of a situation and then you get thrust into the real world where we've got, you know, a NICU down the street from me and they deliver babies all day, every day. They're there for a couple of weeks, a couple of months, and then they're discharged mm-hmm. and they don't have the capacity to know who is picking them up when there's hundreds of home-based clinicians. So that puts it on us. We have to reach out and request copies of the medical records after we have signed consent because, unfortunately, most early interventionists do not know how to obtain those records. I mean, there are some that can, but that's not the given case across the nation, right? Right. right. But that also gives you an opportunity to bond and to learn that clinician because those clinicians know that baby and they can tell you, Hey, this family's in a state of crisis because this is going on. The patient responds well to this. And then you can go in and say, I understand from your NICU clinician and team that there are concerns for a cortical vision impairment. There are concerns for maybe a potential comorbidity of a genetic event. But we have the luxury of knowing which NICU they came from. And if you reach out to the colleagues, you can establish that healthy relationship to find out this is where they were six months ago. Let's celebrate how far they've come. And then let's proceed with interventions to make optimal healing occur. Right. Exactly. And I will say, like, let's talk about the elephant in the room right here. Let's be honest and say, when a baby leaves the NICU, we don't always know where they're going, right? We don't know. There's not always that secure bridge to say, hey, you're leaving my NICU. You're going to start here in the next day for therapy, right? Like there are certain programs that are being tried that have been developed to help. I know like Dr. Pineda has published on like the baby bridge program and different types of opportunities to help from that transition from NICU to home or NICU to early intervention services. But we know that always doesn't happen. And we know that it's it's hard to navigate and assume that your client is always going to leave and get therapy. Or on the flip side, it's it's easy to, it's hard to navigate a medical system like a hospital, when you are a community-based therapist working with, you know, children and family in their home, and you don't have the experience to know how to navigate a complicated hospital system and reach the different clinicians. So I think, you know, we as a field have to know better and do better. And remember that what we're doing in the NICU is to help get them home safely, right? The real work and the real meat and potatoes. Yes, I'm saying another weird phrase, but the real meat, I can't help it. Like, I don't know what's wrong with me, but the real meat and potatoes is like when you're home in a salient environment and starting to use that environment to support and habituate your development, right? So I think we have to do better in our field to connect the dots and to work together and not be like, well, I'm a neonatal therapist or I'm a NICU therapist or I'm a you know early intervention therapist. We're not just a specific therapist. We work with specific populations, specific families. So I think we can't lose sight of that. 
I do want to remind everybody that if you're interested in learning about how to bridge those gaps and how to learn how to reach in the community, I think we have to go back to our communication roots and know how to talk to different personalities and different levels of professionals and different, have opportunities to have conversations that are not always easy, right? Yes. You know, one thing is a pet peeve is that we assume that they're going to follow the plan that we laid out in the NICU, but that baby may look <laughs> very different. No, but it's true. Like I'm a very A-type personality. I think that everybody should do things the way I want it to be done, right? Like yes. that's me in a nutshell, but we have to remember Babies are going to evolve, mature, and change as they get discharged. And even in a few weeks, they may be so different. The plan has to change. And that's okay because it's it's all for what's good for the baby and the family. Does that make sense? Yeah. I've had the pleasure of working with a couple little ones that have HIE. And one of them was sent home on palliative care, had an mm-hmm. additional stroke and transitioned to hospice. Right. And that's not, I mean, she ended up making a miraculous recovery. Right. Like it is also, I, I am aware of truly the depth of that miracle. Right. But we as community-based clinicians in pediatrics are not equipped for working with hospice. Right. That's not a natural transition, but y'all, when we are, called to serve with patients that have HIE, you have to prepare your heart to mentor and to hold conversations that could go that route. Right. Exactly. And I think we have to remember that in the adult literature, there's a lot to support our role in palliative care with feeding and swallowing. I think we need to remember that in the pediatric world, we still have a role. I mean, we have to remember that oftentimes feeding and swallowing may be the only pleasure that this family and this child has. And if that's something we can support safely and support it in a way to validate everybody's feelings and emotions, that is our role as well. So that's a really good point to bring up because, you know, if it's a severe case of HIE, they may go home on palliative or they may end up going home with a tracheostomy with ventilator support. So that is a very extreme outlier, but that is a reality that we may see. So thank you for bringing that up as well. So I'm very humbled to work with so many families and children that have HIE, that have been had the primary diagnosis of HIE. And I had this one little boy who we actually shared birthday. And funny story, he was not a great feeder after his injury. And mom and dad were like, amazing. When I say amazing, like Dad was probably a better speech pathologist than I was. Like he was like, I got this. And he was like, he ordered things that I never even heard of. And it really helped us. But he, you know, I remember it was time to have that conversation of like, we think we need to do a swallow study. And I remember he Googled what a swallow study was. He understood it. And I never knew he had my birthday until I was about to do the video. And I look at the image and it had his birthday on there. And I said to them, this is a sign that we're, our swallowing is going to be good today. And I said, our birthdays are the same. He's in a really good state right now. He looks really healthy and happy. Let's see how he does. And he had some challenges, but he was able to go home feeding. And the reason I say that story is that oftentimes our connections with the families, even on their toughest times, can be something that helps them digest information and understand that medical path that can be so challenging. 
So before I kind of dive into two major events that these families go through, before they go home, I do want to talk about just common feeding issues that you're going to be seeing. As a speech pathologist, as an occupational therapist, as anyone working with these families, you might see that they don't have the best state control. So we know that state can go from like quiet to alert, to irritable, to crying. And with this population, sometimes they're like zero to a hundred within seconds and it's hard to really control them. So, you know, if you and I are not able to control how we're feeling and our alertness and our wake states, this is where, you know, we wouldn't feel good. So this is where we really want to lean on our occupational therapy cohorts and our physical therapy cohorts to help us with understanding what supportive measures can we do that will help the child control their state? Is it supportive swaddling, specific type of positioning, anything that will help them? They may have like tremors or jittery movements that are not related to seizures that are more like tone-based movements or like a brain injury recovery type movement. That's something you may see often, including like clonus. They may have fluctuating tone and you might see that they have like this hyperactive rooting where they show hunger cues, they look hungry, but then when you give them the nipple or the bottle or the breast or the bottle, they can't really figure out what to do. And it's that motor planning to like, I want a root, I want a latch, but I can't figure out how to do it. And then in the beginning, you may see that they are showing clinical signs and symptoms of aspiration. That's not always the case though, because we know that Babies in general, and there's more research being done on this, but babies in general don't always present with the same signs and symptoms of aspiration that you may see in your adult population. So you really want to look at the child at their baseline before you're feeding them. And then as you're feeding them, really see if they're showing any behavioral changes like bearing down or eye blinking or color change or even just like a quick nasal flare that's giving you an indicator that you think that they're having trouble accommodating liquid. And then if they're disengaged with feeding or they're stopping feeding too early or too soon, it may be their communication that they can't accommodate the liquid and they can't accommodate swallowing. So those are signs we want to really look for for common feeding issues. I'm not going to sit here and tell you that every single baby with HIE needs a swallow study. I'm not going to tell you that every baby with HIE needs a specific type of bottle or nipple because I don't know every single baby with HIE. I know that baby at that moment that I'm working with and what they need. So I think we have to be very baby specific and patient specific to determine what they need at that time. So using our clinical judgment and using our the best therapeutic modalities that we have, I really want to stress that we can't jump and assume they're going to need a swallow study or that they're going to need a certain type of nipple when we have to really go through the therapeutic planning and looking at what strategies maximize the baby. And remember that they really haven't eaten for the first five days of their life So we can't go by one feeding or two feedings. We may have to go and look at giving them that error, that practice where they can have errors and learn how to ride that bike, which is the bottle, right? So learn how to learn that bike and fall and get up and fall and get up to really practice how to feed safely and efficiently. So I think that's something as a field we have to do. So folks, this exact same thing carries over to when they're older. Oh, yeah. I've got... A little one on my caseload who has HIE, secondary to a congenital heart defect, and has a shunt, has all the things are happening, and scheduled for additional major surgery at six, and then 
the family contracted COVID and they did everything they could to prevent it coming into their home. Mm. But he's a transplant warrior, like all the things. And however, for him, it was like a reboot. I mean, we triggered breakthrough seizures, but with those breakthrough seizures, where they impact, where they occur can Mm -hmm. influence motor planning. And for him, this child's been MPO and now we are allowed, we got updated instrumental swallow after we got discharged from the hospital and started healing. And we got cleared to start conservative ITC level three and four trials. That's great. Um, it's amazing, but yeah. it is, you have to continually reassess this because as they get bigger and things change and motor planning changes and those extra comorbidities such as seizures and or catching COVID right. come and go. So don't think that this stops just in the NICU. This is going to be lifelong for some of these kiddos. Okay. Sorry. Just had to. No, no, no. I mean, it just, you know, I think you make a great point is that these, this population is going to change. They're going to evolve. And a lot of that goes back to theories of recovery too. Like we know that some of these babies and these children are so resilient that they're able to recover differently. And that if you compare to you and I, you know, if we had, it's the same injury. So we need to look at those theories of of recovery, like neuroplasticity, exactly. And think about, is this, I know we're on the same path there. We're so our, nerdy. I love that. But it's true though. Like we have to remember that the baby that leaves the NICU by two weeks may not be the same baby anymore, right? Because their brain is changing. I mean, I have I once had a child with HIE, a baby, and he presented as probably one of the worst feeders I ever saw. Was terrible. And we did a swallow study and we did a fees. So we did a video and a fees. And he did terrible. And I remember, and I kept saying terrible because mom kept using that word. So when she would say it, I'd be like, oh, God. it just it resonated in my head. She'd be like, this is terrible. And I remember the day before he was supposed to get his, his G-tube, she said to me, can we just do one more study? I think he's a different baby. And it was literally five days later. And I was like, I, I said to her, I, I, I was like, do you really believe he's a different baby at this point? I said, let's talk about his motor, his state, all the stuff that we're looking at. And she goes, yes, I do. And she actually pulled out a notebook and she was writing down everything we were saying in every therapy session and was showing me themes of how he was improving. And I said, you know what? I'm going to go with your mother instinct and with yeah. your excellent documentation. Like we all know documentation matters and her documentation yeah. was excellent. And honestly, his swallow was near perfect. So that just shows you that the brain can heal and the brain is magical. And again, we're speech pathologists. Science is in our name. So we have to know pathophysiology as well yeah. as we know anything else. So that's my soapbox. But I could talk about this topic all day and I'm very passionate about it. But I would be remiss if I don't talk about an amazing organization, an amazing resource that is out there for our families. It's called Hope for HIE and their website is hopeforhie.org. And they it's a parent-run organization that gives parents an, a place to learn about scary medical terms gives parents a place to learn about support groups, the first year of life, MRI day, which is the scariest day for most parents. MRI day can be the like day of life five or day of life 10. And MRI day is scary because this is the day that the parent is going to know, does my baby have a brain, has brain damage? 
because even though the baby was cold, right, we don't know if the baby's brain has damage or not. We don't know at that point. So they have to wait for this MRI, typically day of life five or day of life 10 to find out, does my baby have brain damage? And parents literally, when it's MRI day, you honestly, all you can do that day is just support them because the stress and the anxiety that these parents are going through, it's, it's like anticipating the worst, right? And I remember walking in one day with another family and the mom who was like, probably one of the strongest moms I ever worked with was like almost catatonic because all she could think about was what could the MRI say and what if, and going down that rabbit hole and it's a trauma in itself. I just have to say that, but what's excellent about hope for HIE is that they have peer to peer mentorship and peer to peer support. So when you're actually going through the process and it's occurring, you can reach out to them and they'll connect you with a parent that has experience and knows what you're going through. Lastly, it's a great place for clinicians to go as well because they have really good information on partnerships and how you can print out different resources to support your unit. And then they recently published a book called HIE Lights of Hope, so Highlights of Hope, that have parent and clinician stories about working with HIE and how we can better support this population. So honestly, if you remember one thing from this podcast, please go to Hope for HIE, support this great organization. It's something that it will really change your practice if you're working across the continuum of care, not just the NICU. And I could talk about this all day, guys, like, please stop me. But if you do have questions or if you do want to learn more about HIE from a neonatal therapy perspective or as a community therapist perspective or as a, even a school-based therapist perspective, please reach out to me or Michelle or Aaron or Kristen West. We're more than happy to support you with understanding how to unpack a diagnosis, but then how to also look at the client and the child and the parents and help with that planning so it's very patient and client-specific. Not all or none, not like always going down one specific rabbit hole of treatment. I love this so much, but you said the book name so fast that I couldn't find it on the Amazon. Can okay. you say it again? I'm gonna, you can actually go to the Hope for HIE website and they have like a link that'll take you. It says purchase the book and it takes you to Amazon. It's called HIE Lights of Hope. So Highlights oh, of Hope. Okay. Okay, got it. The HIE is in capitals. But Michelle, don't worry about ordering one because I have a copy I want to give to you, which I'll give to you when I see you very soon. Oh my God, I love you. Thank you. I guess. And folks, they even have their own podcast. Yes. Because I'm pulling it up and they're on Instagram. So please check out their Instagram account as well. Okay. And the podcast was, oh, I had it and then I lost it. It says, just say hi. So just say HIE podcast. And it's really cute because the microphone is a brain, which I just love. And they have different episodes. So they have it on tethered oral tissues, cerebral palsy, nursing with HIE, connecting with community perspectives, connecting with a neonatologists, yes. how to deal with the holidays, how to deal with different parent outcomes. So these are these are some really great opportunities to listen to the families from their perspectives. Yes. I love this giving voice here and empowerment. Oh my gosh. Rocky, holy cow. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. It's an honor to work with you guys today and talk with you about everything beautiful about HIE. So we need to have a 
talk. I'm just long-term planning for ASHA 2023. It would be awesome to collaborate with this organization to see them like co-present with speech pathologist. Oh, yes. I actually know the person pretty, I don't know her well, but I know her through people and she's more than happy to support anything. She's very, she wants therapists to really understand this diagnosis and how to work with this population. So I think anything that we would want, she'd be more than happy to work with us for sure. Oh my God, my brain is on fire. I have so many thoughts. Okay. That's great though. That's so great. Yes. This is amazing. Okay. Folks, y'all be sure to tune in and check out Dr. Rocky Garcia has lectures kind of every which way because she's amazing. So check her out at 